1: Welcome back to Working Overtime, the advicey scrappy-do to working scooby, I'm Isaac Butler.
0: And I'm June Thomas. What are
1: we talking about today, Isaac? I'm not going to lie, today's topic may be a little weird. (gasps) Weird topics are my favorite topics. Okay, great. Well, you may remember a few weeks ago in Working Overtime, because I know you religiously listen to the show, even the ones you are not on. Karen Hahn and I were talking about audience. You know, who's the intended audience for your work? How much should you think about that? And, you know, one thing we talked about briefly was the audience of the future. What would people years from now, or maybe even after we're dead, think of our work? And that got me wondering. Actually, what will they think about it, you know? And should we worry about that? And are we writing for our present time or or for posterity? So how does the future figure in to the creative process?
0: For me, at least, as something that is likely to create a writer's block. I mean, it's bad enough to just have to meet deadlines without adding anxiety about the needs and Mm. tastes of readers decades down the line.
1: Are you crazy? That is true. But the reason why I thought... I want to talk about this with June is, you know, I know you're a big (laughs) fan of Oliver Berkman's 4,000 weeks. and He was a guest on the podcast and, you know, it's a book entirely about how the knowledge that we have limited time on the earth should actually be freeing and should shape our productivity instead of creating paralysis. And I'm just wondering about. Is there something there that we can use for our own creativity? You know, is there some way of thinking about future readers that might actually help us?
0: You know, I haven't necessarily thought about it for my own writing, but as someone Mm. whose journalism has mostly appeared on the Internet. (laughs) Mine too. Yeah, I do sometimes worry how and sometimes even if what we're making will be preserved. I mean, in the early days of Slate, we used to publish a a weird, weird thing called Slate on Paper which collected a week's worth of the magazine's content into a printed magazine. And it was mostly a sort of sop to old school readers who weren't comfortable with the internet because remember, Slate started in 1996. And as someone who was very much involved with the production of Slate on paper, I can tell you it was a pain in the ass to make. However, when I look at the two or three copies that I still have, it does make me realize like, It allowed you to see what was going on in the magazine that week, who was on the staff that week. Those aren't things that you can really figure out on the web. The internet is a fleeting, ephemeral place.
1: Yes, that's definitely true. And, you know, it's getting more and more ephemeral. That's the thing, you know, we used to think about... Everything's going to live on the internet forever. It's going to be this kind of infinite Borgesian archive, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's going to preserve our culture. But it's actually not true. If anything, is, as, as it becomes more owned by mega corporations, more and more stuff gets memory hold.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And, you know, you and I are both, among other things, cultural historians, right? We yeah. are trying to actually take things that might get forgotten and place them in a narrative context along with the rest of our culture so that... They illuminate our culture and our culture illuminates them, et cetera. Mm. And so I think this is something you and I might, might think about a lot, right? Mm. But at the same time, how many works of cultural history are still read 50 years after they're written? Like we are trafficking actually in an art form that the culture industry does not seem particularly invested in preserving.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's so true. Not as many as most writers would like uh, are going <laughs> to be still being talked about in 50 years time, still being mm-hmm. read. And, you know, partly that's down to publishers. The books they keep in print are the ones we read and the ones they keep in print are the ones that are read. But that doesn't necessarily correlate in quality or intrinsic interest. There are so many systemic factors at play. Today, we can find some out-of-print books for purchase on the internet. We can find some in libraries. But I do wonder if there'll be some universal access system at some point in the near future where we will be able to make sure that nothing gets absolutely memory hold, but I don't really know if that's gonna happen.
1: My idea is that eventually they will be able to beam to us the (laughs) memory of having experienced a work of art
2: without us having
1: to do it, right? So it'll be like the memory of seeing the movie instead of the movie itself. And that way things will live on in this sort of weird, weird way. Probably not within our lifetime, though. (laughs) So June, you know, it does actually turn out that we are not alone in thinking about this. A few people have very recently been writing about posterity and changing trends in art and audience, and I will actually be talking with one of them after this.
0: Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey listeners, do you have any tips or questions about the creative process? If so, get in touch and share your advice or the dilemmas that you want us to help with. You can email us at, working at slate.com or even better, you can call us and leave a message at 304-933-9675. That's 304-933-W-O-R-K.
1: Welcome back to Working Overtime. So my mom, who's a big fan of the show, often (laughs) sends me text messages with, you know, little notes after she listens to the episode. She sent me this very charming piece in the Washington Post by Michael Dearda, their long-serving book critic about what books will last because Mm -hmm. it turns out 25 years ago he wrote a piece about which authors are going to stand the test of time and still be relevant 25 years later and he revisits that list and talks with good humor about what he got right and what he got wrong and he got a lot of things Right. I should say. Mm. But there are other ones, you know, that were big assumptions back then in the 90s and and just didn't pan out. For example, you know, all those big deal straight male writers of suburban ennui, no one gives a shit about them anymore.
0: Yeah, I cannot say I am heartbroken to hear
1: those bits of news. (laughs) That's probably true. But anyway, he wrote a list of things that authors could do if they want to make sure their work survives into posterity okay mm. so drum roll please <laughs> here are the tips 1 write first rate genre fiction whether it's mystery fantasy or romance mm. 2 be sure to produce one big masterpiece suitable for the classroom Dumb. 3 build a fan base among the young 4 find a publisher willing to keep your books readily available mm. 5 dominate some niche better than anyone else so long as people lose themselves in regency romances they will always read georgette hayer well so that seems easy right
0: yeah piece of cake
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah let's just get right on writing our genre masterpiece that will be uh, read (laughs) in classrooms right exactly but I do wonder if the lesson here for our creative process, for everyone's creative process, is maybe you just shouldn't think about this at all. Like you can't yeah. will yourself to dominate a niche, can you?
0: No, would that you could, but no, I don't think you can.
1: So anyway, just a couple days after, there was another even more fascinating mm. piece published on Substack by the novelist Lincoln Michelle, examining these same questions from a different angle. How do cultural trends actually work, and how do they change? In other words. Is Jody Picoult really the Charles Dickens of our time? (laughs) So I called Lincoln up to talk to him about this, and this is what he had to say. Lincoln, Michelle, thanks for taking some time to talk to us today. Thanks for having me. So, I really enjoyed that piece that you wrote for your Substack Countercraft about, you know, kind of the longevity of literature, what survives into posterity and what doesn't and why. And I guess, uh, other than being middle aged like myself, what made you uh, decide to write about that?
2: Oh, you know, well, the nice thing about having a Substack is you can kind of just write about whatever, you know, pet peeves you have or <laughs> whatever things you want to rant about. But there was I just seen some and had been in some discussions about this kind of question and particularly the question about whether there's certain categories of literature that survive better you know is it the populist writers who survive or the critical darlings who survive so it was in some of those conversations and i was also reading uh, just to shout it out a smart article i thought in the washington post by the writer michael durda who had like revisited his picks for longevity and said what he got right and wrong and so just thinking about the topic that way
1: I love that piece. I thought it was so charming and humane, you know? Like, <laughs> it was interesting that Derrida that wrote that because, you know, there was a time when critics thought that part of their purpose was to determine which works were going to survive, right? Like, a work of art couldn't be called great with a capital G unless the critic really thought future generations would also think it was great with a capital G. It seems to me like there was a time when when we thought about things through that lens and that time has sort of gone away
2: maybe i think you're right but i also think the time like wasn't that long ago i mean one thing i I wrote in the substack piece that i find interesting is just how quickly these cultural conversations can change. So like when I was in college in the early aughts, so not that long ago, or not that long ago to me, the idea that literary fiction and genre fiction were like separate categories that never overlapped was still kind of common. And I think almost no one thinks that way today. You know, you get sci-fi and horror books competing for the Pulitzer Prize these days.
1: Yeah, I mean, you look at like those essays that people like, you know, Jonathan Leatham and Michael Chabin were writing in the early aughts, you know, it, it's almost like a huge paradigm shift has gone on since then, in part because of them.
2: Or the whole debate around when books are middle brow or not. Right. I remember, there was like a big scandal about whether Donna Tartt's *The Goldfinch* was too middle brow to win the Pulitzer, and it's hard to even imagine someone writing that article today. We don't
1: even have brows anymore. We we just <laughs> have very long bangs, and then our eyes. There's just no, there's no high brow. There's no low brow. There's no middle. So, you know, your piece is in part about the big myths we have about posterity, right? So what are those myths that we carry around about what lasts and what doesn't?
2: Well, I do think, you know, in the more recent history, there's become a narrative that the things that last are maybe the things that were massively popular at the time. And it's maybe part of this, uh, you know, trend that we call optimism now, which at one point I think meant something that I think we can all agree with, which is that sometimes really popular art is as good as anything that's not, you know, that's critically acclaimed and and very valuable, but it's kind of moved into the idea that only what is popular (laughs) is good and anything else must have something flawed about it. And yeah, I have, I do have a particular pet peeve related to that, which is just the way that we sometimes impose our modern categories and modern frameworks uh, in art and, and in all aspects of life. But here, you know, I was talking about art on past context when those categories were just not how people thought about things. Mm -hmm. So an example of that that I talked about is that I often see writers say that, you know, now famous writers such as Jane Austen was a populist who wrote for the masses, that she's the equivalent of, say, modern-day romance writers. And I say this with no, you know, critique of romance at all, but that's not how, you know, her books were thought of at the time. And in reality, her books didn't sell that well. They went out of print quickly. But she had a big fan base of aristocratic opinion makers, including apparently the Prince Regent, who who later became, uh, you know, the king. So she was really celebrated by the literal elite. Calling her a, a writer for the masses is almost exactly wrong.
1: There's also a period of time where what does writing for the masses even
2: mean when you're talking about the literacy yes. rates of the
1: era in question, right?
2: Right. And I said that in the piece, but, you know, it's my understanding that in that time period, most books, including books that you know, were thought of as doing well, We're printed in editions of a couple hundred or something. So yeah, what does it even mean to talk about the mass market when that's the market? Yeah,
1: Lincoln, that's a really great point. And uh, I should just say to listeners that Lincoln, June, and I will have much more to say about posterity after this break.
2: This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer.
0: please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. They're all good. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, we would love for you to rate or review the show. It really does help people to find us. And if Overcast is your app of choice, as it is for me, and I believe it is for Isaac too, please hit the star to recommend the episode to others.
1: Welcome back. So were you surprised by anything you discovered while writing this piece?
2: Well, no, but only because um when I say that it's a pet peeve, I mean there's something I've like read about and ranted about before. So I've looked this stuff up, but I do think it's illuminating to look at the like the bestseller list, and you can find these on Wikipedia from decades past. There's like the publishers weekly's bestseller lists of the twenties and the thirties and the nineteen tens and whatever you might look at. And just seeing how many of those names not only are completely unfamiliar, but how many of the links are dead. The, right. No one has even bothered to create a Wikipedia page about someone who was a bestseller 100 years ago.
1: Yeah, and it's now, of course, you know, because this podcast isn't only about writing, it's worth saying that's not the only art form that's true of, right? You know, I mean, you read old coverage of visual art and you'll be like, who is this painter? I've never heard of this painter. And they were a big <laughs> deal in the 1960s or whatever.
2: Yeah, I think it's true of, of all all art forms.
1: So here's a question. Should we care about posterity at all? I mean, we'll all be dead by the time it's determined whether Jody (laughs) Foucault is
2: our times Charles Dickens or whatever, right? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing that I, you know, I said in the piece, and I feel like on one level, this feels like a cop out, but I also think it's true is that you just have no idea what's going to last, right? You know, obviously, you have pretty famous examples like... H.P. Lovecraft, who, you know, has plenty of problems, but certainly has endured as a big influence, who died, you know, in poverty. You have writers like Franz Kafka, who didn't even publish most of their work that's now celebrated today. Or, you know, a book like The Confederacy of Dunces was only published after, you know, Jonathan Kennedy O'Toole's death, and so on and so forth. And then I do think that for me, and, you know, I think we're probably roughly the same age, maybe you feel the same way, but having now, you know, been an adult for a while, just seeing how quickly writers or artists in any art form fall in and out of favor, it can happen pretty rapidly. The people who were the big names when I was in college in the 2000s, and I'm talking about past authors, not just contemporaries then, many of them are not really discussed anymore.
1: Yeah. I mean, no one reads Norman Mailer, right? No one reads John Updike, (laughs) except to dunk on them. Or, well, Patricia Lockwood, I guess, reads John Updike, but no one (laughs) else reads John Updike. But it's interesting that you bring that up because you know I feel like we're in this really dangerous place Right now, specifically right now when it comes to cultural preservation, because, you know, you read these statistics about how much of culture, how much of the arts we're actually losing all the time, whether it's. Mm you know, streaming services, taking TV shows off. And of course, then they're never issued on DVD and who knows what happens to them. Something like 80% of video games from the 1980s don't really exist anymore. But also like a lot of the old weird art projects that people were making on the internet are gone forever. You know, they're flash animated or Mm -hmm. whatever, and no one has flash right now. And then as a cultural historian, I worry about, you know, 50 years from now, what are people going to do when they write about our time and no one kept a diary and no one sent anyone a letter, right? You know? I mean, do you do you think about this in terms of cultural preservation and you know what do we do? How, do? how do we protect the present for the future?
2: I mean, I totally agree with you. And that's another thing that's interesting how quickly it's changed, right? Because 20 years ago, it was don't put anything online that you don't want to be on there forever. And now it's like, oh, the project that I worked on forever is gone.
1: This is going to sound like a crazy, and I'm sure I'll get an angry listener email about this. But, you know, you think about something like Succession, right, which dominated the media discourse for the final two months of its run. No one talks about it anymore. It just went off the air like three weeks ago, right? There is like it's no longer in the conversation at all. It's very strange how quickly we burn through stuff and then don't save it.
2: Yeah, and I think that's especially true of TV. I mean, obviously, a million people have talked about our endless streaming services uh, era that we're in. But yeah, it's much harder for things to break through on that front. I I feel the same way about movies. I feel like movies are constantly in theaters and I hear people talk about them for a week and then they're out.
1: I guess this brings me to... What we do as creative artists, how we should approach history, how we think about it. Is it just a burden to think about what the future will make of our work when the body scout, your wonderful uh, sci-fi novel, when you you. were writing it, you know, are you thinking about I'm in the conversation of sci-fi or is that or is that something that's just like a huge burden to think about how the future is going to approach your work?
2: You know, I don't don't think about the future. I do think about the past a lot in the way that you just framed it, actually, which is to say when I'm writing in in genres, I like to think about writing in a tradition in the sense that I am in a conversation with these other authors who have published. And hopefully I'm adding something new to the conversation.
1: But do you think about being that person for, you know, in 15 years, someone's like, I want to write a sci-fi novel that somehow deals with sports. And, you know, I'm going to be in conversation with the body (laughs) scout or whatever.
2: I don't think about it because I feel like I just don't know what to think there, you know. I was just thinking about this when you when you asked me to be on uh, this podcast, but I was thinking about how when COVID nineteen hit, all these plague novels, you know, came back right. and became bestsellers again. Camus' uh, The Plague, which I loved um, back in the day, but obviously has been eclipsed by um, Myth of Sisyphus and The Stranger, and even more recent books like Ling Ma's Severance. Right, that book came back a bestseller because of this freak event. And, you know, there's no way to predict that kind of stuff. And, you know, maybe some sports league, like what I depicted in the book, will get pitched or something and mine will come back. But, you know, who knows about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, in a weird way, I wonder if maybe the converse is true, right? Maybe it's really freeing to know that there's like really fuck all you can do That's going to ensure that anyone cares about anything you made 20 years from now, right? Like, you just have no control over it.
2: Well, and I think if we're being, you know, honest and like a bit depressing, when we're talking about literature, you know, if if literature is going to really endure in 20, 50 years, most likely it's because there's like a movie adaptation people like or something, which is even more out of your hands. You know, what can you do to ensure that?
1: You know, when you think of the... Artists who were sort of most successful at crafting that kind of legacy and longevity, right? The ones who do it intentionally, you know, they're often great masters at the end of their life and they spend some significant portion of the end of that life. Trying to make sure that legacy is secure, you know, like Stephen Sondheim only finished one musical in the entire 21st century. He only died a couple years ago. And that's largely because, you know, he was so focused on protecting his legacy and making sure that his version of his life story was the one that everyone knew and that, you know, like he had sort of dictated his own terms for his survival.
2: And another thing like that I was thinking about was the, you know, the late great Cory McCarthy, who, you know, I would like to think would, would survive, but he's a good example. Example of doing what you need to do, perhaps to survive. Uh, again, I'm assuming, but he kind of had to do, in my view, like three things. One is write really critical darling books that literary insiders like, but that didn't sell. Right. right He did that for decades and decades. Then he wrote bestsellers because he had all the pretty horses became a bestseller in The Road, and then he had to have huge movie adaptations do well, like No Country for Old Men. And I think the combination of those three will secure his legacy. But there's so much of that is up to, to luck and chance and. Yeah, I think it's freeing to not worry about it.
1: Yeah, I I think it could be freeing to not worry about it. And, you know, another thing that I find kind of freeing, you know, if I'm going to give some advice to our listeners here is, you know, if you go to a museum and look through not whatever new show it's got going on, but, you know, look through the collection of the museum, walk through those rooms, you're not going to recognize every name on that wall. And you might actually get a lot out of a painting that you're looking at And it it might not be anyone you've ever heard of. Right. And, you know, that really tells you something about not everyone's going to be Vincent Van Gogh. (laughs) I know I'm not, you know, I don't want to say anything about you, Lincoln, but I know I'm not. Right. But like, that's okay. Right. You're still doing something of value just because it
2: doesn't last forever. Yeah. And maybe another kind of positive spin on this is you also don't know what's going to Last, I mean, I, nothing of mine has lasted. There hasn't been enough time. But s- sometimes I've, I've had stories which I thought no one would even publish that then end up becoming, you know, one of my more popular stories. Or I recently sold an option for a TV show for something that I thought would never get published. Now, the TV show probably won't ever happen. But if it does, that, that'll end up being my legacy. And it was a story I almost didn't even send to anyone.
1: And also, it gave you, a, you know, a few thousand bucks so you can keep yeah. working on the next thing. I mean, that's not nothing, right?
2: No, that is very useful.
1: One last thing, of course, is that a lot of us, you included, are doing a lot of writing in an ephemeral space. Substack is going to go out of business someday, right? You know, our tweets are going to be lost, our blue skies. What are we calling them? Hopefully. Skeets. Skeets. skeets, (laughs) posts, whatever they are. Lightning bolts, they're going to be gone, right? It's wild how much energy we put into these things where on some level it's like, oh, actually in a year or two, that'll just be like tears and rain. (laughs)
2: <laughs> but you also kind of hope that, right? Like, you know, you read the the biographies or the collected oh, yeah. works of some great author you love from 50 years ago, and it's their perfectly honed New Yorker pieces. <laughs> and it's like, what are they going to have? Are, are like tossed off typo filled substacks and tweets? Hopefully not. I hope that stuff disappears. Well, you know,
1: I had this blog for a long time. It was a theater blog. But one of the reasons why I was able to be so prolific on it is because I didn't edit anything. I didn't even proofread it. I just put it out there, right? And I was very open about that, that that was my process. And that's one of the reasons why it's now password protected and no one will ever read it, right? <laughs> but an academic recently wrote a book about the theater blogging era. And a few of my posts mm. are reproduced in it with my permission, but none of the verbiage has been cleaned up. And I gave her permission to do that. And then one day in a bookstore in England, because it was only published in the UK, I saw the book and I leafed through it and I was like, "Oh my god, why did I give her permission to do that?" I was so furious at her even though I had told her it was okay, right? So maybe you're right. Maybe we right, should right. burn our journals, whatever the digital equivalent is of burning your journals.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's all weird, right? It's also weird cuz like when you're you're working in like the fields, we work in or at least the stuff that I consider like the the best stuff that I put the most time into and the most care is most likely not going to be read as much as some Substack article I tossed off in an hour that went semi-viral. Yeah, totally. totally. (laughs) It's like the the stuff you don't care about, or even just, you know, the dumbest tweet I've written has certainly been read more times than (laughs) my most carefully honed short story.
1: Yes, that is definitely, definitely true. Well, Lincoln, thank you so much for taking a little time to talk to us about your great piece.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me
1: on. Can you once again tell people where they can find you
2: online and read some of your stuff? Yeah, well, my my substack is countercraft.substack.com. It's free to sign up for, so feel free to sign up. Otherwise, I'm on various social media sites that are rapidly propagating and rapidly collapsing, so (laughs) I don't even need to throw my handles there.
1: And Lincoln's wonderful sci-fi novel, The Body Scout, is available from wherever you can get your books. It's still in print. It's really great. You'll have a lot of fun reading it. Lincoln, thank you again. Thank you. So, June, this conversation I had with Lincoln I actually found it really helpful because, I don't know, like I'm middle-aged now. Things (laughs) like a legacy or posterity or whatever, they do loom a little bit larger in my mind. I've got more years in the rearview mirror than I probably have ahead. (laughs) But you really can't predict how any of that's going to work, can you?
0: No, you cannot. I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I've been researching feminist bookstores from the 1970s through the 90s. In the USA and Canada, these stores were part of a movement of publishers and writers who were agitating to expand the range of books that got published and then to get them into more readers hands. And things did change. The canon expanded. I should note that there were always some populations who did not see their lives in print and still waiting for that. But 40 or so years later, most of those books that these women managed to get into print are now out of print. So Mm. it's striking how cyclical cultural tastes and movements are. Like, you can never rest on your laurels, you know?
1: Yes, totally. Culture has to be preserved. But for the individual artist, no matter what medium you're working in, this really isn't something that's that much under your control, (laughs) you know? And I should say that, look, you might not be Jackson Pollock or Stephen Sondheim (laughs) or, you know, whatever, but that doesn't mean your work doesn't have value.
0: No, and I think you just have to do your work. This is not something that is productive to think about. Maybe you and I will be the lasting voices of the uh, 2020s. Maybe. I'm not going to hold my breath, though.
1: <laughs> and in some ways, I think that we can take solace from that. You yeah. know, that, yeah. that not only could that take the pressure off, but also it's just like the future holds what it's going to hold. You can take care of your work. So maybe in closing, June, I just want to know who's an artist you love who hasn't been well served by posterity?
0: Hmm. I think a lot about journalists. I mean, they can be hugely popular, hugely influential, have a massive impact. But the nature of the work that they do, the nature of their writing means that unless they also wrote books, they tend not to last. Thinking specifically of Janet Flanner, who wrote the New Yorker's letter from Paris for, I think, five decades, her work has disappeared. You can find many of her books available on Amazon, for example, even if they are out of print. But she receives far more attention for her biography, for being one of those lesbians who was in Paris between the wars, for being in Paris during World War Two, for the people she knew and socialized with, even for some iconic photos she appeared in. (laughs) So she's still being talked about, but it's not because of her work. And I don't know, this feels something a little bit sad about that. But hey, here we are talking about her on a podcast. Who's your pick for underappreciated talent from the past?
1: This is one that I think is is really interesting. Whenever I speak to a drama class, you know, particularly one that's focused on on Shakespeare, I try to bring up Shakespeare's contemporaries, the Jacobean playwrights. Mm. And it's really, there's usually only one student per class who's read any Jacobean playwright. And it's really fascinating because, you know, those writers are not as good as Shakespeare. I mean, that's (laughs) that's definitely true, but he was far more aesthetically and in terms of content conservative than Mm. they were. And so there is a wild, almost kind of Tarantino-esque streak to that work. You know, to to give just one example, there's this play called The Revenger's Tragedy, which is sort of a riff on Hamlet. You know, you've got a guy, a lecherous duke has killed his girlfriend, and he um, disguises himself, infiltrates the duke's coterie, and then gradually picks off the duke's inner circle before murdering the duke, right? Mm. But on top of that, he carries around the skull of his dead girlfriend (laughs) and his soliloquies are delivered to the skull of the dead girlfriend and and how he kills the Duke. Wait, wait, it gets better. How he kills the Duke is he says to the Duke, I've got this hot lady. Who's like ready for you to have sex with her. And then he dresses the skull up in the dress and puts poison lipstick where its lips should be. So that when the Duke kisses the skull, he gets poisoned and dies. Oh I my mean, God. What? Yes. There's just a wealth of crazy, hilarious, weird, violent, <laughs> subversive work out there that just people, no one knows about because we put all of our attention onto Shakespeare. And so the Jacobean playwrights for me are, are really big on this. Wow. <laughs> That is all the time we have for this episode of Working Overtime. But let me leave you with one last piece of advice. Actually, two last pieces of (laughs) advice. First of all, do not carry around the skull of your murdered girlfriend (laughs) and poison its lips with lipstick in order to, you know, get revenge. Not a great idea. It doesn't work out for the guy in the Revenger's strategy. It (laughs) won't work out for you. Second piece of advice, why not subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts? And if you have ideas for things that you think we could do better or questions you'd like us to address or just fulsome praise about how amazing we are, we would love to hear from you. You can send us an email at at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK.
0: And if you would like to support what we do, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus. You'll get bonus content including exclusive episodes of Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. You'll be able to read everything on the Slate site and you'll be supporting what we do right here on Working.
1: Thanks as always to Kevin Bendis and to our series producer, Cameron Drews, both of whom will live on in the annals of our hearts. We'll be back on Sunday with a brand new episode of Working, and in two weeks, we'll have another Working Overtime. Until then, get back to work.